As Ez said, my name is Callum. I'm part of our evening meeting here at Grace Church, but the clocks went back an hour last night, so I was able to get up this morning. <laughs> We're continuing our series in the book of Esther, so if you have a Bible, please have it open in chapters 5 and 6. When we started the series a few weeks ago, JP described the story of Esther as being like a pantomime. It's dramatic and funny with characters that we're tempted to boo and hiss at. And I really love a good story. I will read anything from great children's books through to classics with thousands of pages. And people who know me well will tease me saying that I love a book where nothing happens. Sometimes I find a nicely wrapped up ending a bit cheesy. But people who know me well will also tell you that I'm a big Star Wars fan. I grew up in the late 90s, or was born in the late 90s, rather, uh, so grew up on the prequel trilogy. I was too young to see them in the cinema, but would often see toys advertised on TV, and then quickly began to watch the first six films regularly on VHS. Just throwing that in there for some older folk or to make some younger ones feel a bit confused. <laughs> Star Wars has got a story with some big twists and turns. And I'm not yet a parent, but would like to be one day if possible. And the biggest parenting question I have is, at what age do I show my children The Empire Strikes Back? <laughs> There's a big reveal in that film, and I sometimes think, well, at what age will they have it spoiled to them by someone at school? Or, but when will they be able to appreciate it fully? It's a big dilemma. <laughs> I won't spoil it for you 42 years after its release, but, release, but <laughs> it has this big cliffhanger moment at the end. All seems doomed. How are they going to get out of this one? Last week, Tim left um, the book of Esther on a cliffhanger. The Jewish people across the Persian Empire are on limited time. A decree has been signed for their destruction on a day soon to come. Esther has agreed to approach the king without being summoned, despite not being called to him for 30 days. It was a risk that could potentially result in her death. If I perish, I perish, she says. Let's read on and see what happens. I'm reading from Esther 5, verse 1, and this is from the ESV. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther, and what is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. We can all breathe a big sigh of relief. The king accepts her approach. Esther does not perish. But what is interesting here is that she does not immediately ask for the Jews to be saved. Time is running out, and not only does she ask for a feast, but for two feasts. What is going on here? 
Does she think, well, it's a big ask to save my people, so let's just have a couple of last parties? Not at all. Esther is being shrewd with her approach here. The king has signed an irreversible decree, and it would be embarrassing to him to change his mind so quickly, and it would also cost him a lot of money. Her plan is deliberate. At the time, a banquet was the most socially appropriate occasion for the sort of request Esther wanted to ask. She piques the king's curiosity and gradually makes him feel like he is in control. We'll see in later chapters how Esther follows up on this, but for now, let's take a step back and consider how Esther approached the king. When JP introduced the book of Esther to us, he described it as a gospel story. And just like the apostles do in the New Testament, we can read the Old Testament with a new perspective, kind of like putting on a new lens to see through. The Bible is a book about Jesus. It's one big story that leads us to him. Well, where is he here? We can see him in many of the characters. They are like a type of Christ that point us towards him. See Esther's willingness to offer herself up. If I perish, I perish. And see the way that she goes to the throne to intercede for her people. You see, we now have an advocate before the Father, one who champions us, one who takes our place, one who sacrificed himself for us. And now, as the book of Hebrews tells us, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Esther approached the throne of the king with the threat of death so close. We approach the throne of grace knowing that death has been overcome. Esther approached the throne of the king uncertain of his response. We approach the throne of grace confident of God's welcome. Esther approached the throne of the king with a crafty plan to win him over. We approach the throne of grace as sons and daughters of a father who loves to give good gifts. Friends, as we've sang this morning, we can approach the throne of God with such confidence, knowing that we are in Christ. As the song says, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. I wonder how you feel when you come before God. Perhaps you feel guilty about that thing you said to your spouse, your colleague, or your friend. Perhaps you feel tired and exhausted that life is hard and getting out of bed in the morning is an achievement. Or perhaps you simply don't know whether he loves you. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And through his finished work on the cross, we are now united with Christ, with a union that goes beyond comprehension, both very real and mysterious. The sonship that he has through nature becomes ours through adoption, and therefore we can come to our Father confident that we will be received. We can come with our requests and we can come with our complaints. Whatever is on our mind, we can come. Maybe you've given up praying for that family member to be healed. Maybe you've given up praying for that colleague to come to faith. Or maybe you've simply just given up praying completely. Let the truth of these words give you confidence to approach your Father in heaven today. He hears you, he loves you, and he welcomes you to come. His answers may sometimes be mysterious, but we know that he is always good. Now we're going to move on with the story. But before we do, I want to talk about 
dinner-time conversation. I'm sure in this room we, have, we will have many different dinner-eating experiences. Maybe you live by yourself and you don't often get to eat with others. We'd love to have you around our tables for dinner. But for others of you, you might live in uni halls where you get your dinner cooked for you every day, which is a treat for you, and you've got rows and rows of people to talk to. Or maybe you have small children who take most of your attention, or teenagers who respond to a question with one word or a noise at best. I live with two other guys, and we'll usually eat together if we're around, but I also often have the bad habit of slightly dominating the conversation. I work in an office, and if you've ever worked in an office, you'll know that the smallest things can be the most exciting by way of contrast. My housemates work in a school and in a hospital, but if someone brought cake into my office, my housemates are going to hear about it over the dinner table <laughs> that evening. In the next part of the story, the scene changes, leaving us to wonder what will happen with Esther. And we see Haman coming home after his day at work and his interesting conversation with friends and family. Let's read together from verse 9 of chapter 5. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now, that's quite a commute home and a dinner party to follow. I think the closest I've come to being filled with wrath on my commute is when you see someone putting their bag on the seat next to them during rush hour. Don't do it, guys. <laughs> Haman is so filled with wrath that he gets his friends and his wife together, and they come up with a plot to put Mordecai to death. What is going on here? In Haman, we see such a big mood swing. One minute he is joyful, and the next he is filled with wrath. Why is this? Well, here we are given an insight into Haman's heart, into what matters to him. He doesn't just want to be powerful and significant. He wants others to acknowledge his significance. This is why he boasts to his friends and why he gets so fired up when Mordecai does not acknowledge his presence. One of the commentators, Frederick Bush, says that Haman has a monstrous obsession with his own position, power, and privilege. Even in his plot to kill Mordecai, he decides to construct a gallows so ridiculously high that all of Susa would see it. He wants everyone to know about him. And it could be tempting for us to moralize this story here and say, don't be like Haman. Don't let your ego be puffed up. But I think we can all take a warning from his behavior in this passage. Mordecai's refusal to rise before Haman triggered an out-of-proportion response in Haman's heart. And we have to ask ourselves, what causes us to overreact like this? 
For you, it may not be recognition, but whenever you have to spend money, you feel a pang in your heart. Or maybe you have colleagues who you feel just aren't putting enough effort in and you're tempted to snap at them. Or perhaps your grades at school or uni are causing you so much stress that you struggle to take a break. We'll see in the coming weeks the consequences of Haman's idolatrous heart, but here we'll simply acknowledge that there's a danger that we could put other things above God. Career, relationships, money, whatever it may be, it will not satisfy you in the way that God does. We need to be careful to check our hearts, to check our actions as a window to our hearts. Let us remember the words of the psalm that says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. You have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Now, speaking of fat and rich food, the book of Esther is a sandwich. I don't know if that was how you're expecting that sentence to finish, but <laughs> it's true. The subheading to our series mentions a great reversal, and Bible scholars agree that the book of Esther has a symmetrical structure. We can see moments mirrored on either side of the book. And chapter six is the filling. It's the pivot that this book revolves around where we see the beginning of the reversal. Now, don't read into the sandwich thing too much as we'd end up with a very sort of bread-heavy sandwich with not enough filling. And maybe actually the two slices of bread will be a different flavor. Perhaps we could describe it as a game of two halves, with chapter six being the halftime team talk. If you're a sports fan, you would have probably seen a game just like this. Maybe you saw Southampton Arsenal last Sunday. Everything going wrong in the first half, but everything going right in the second. Something shifted during the break. Chapter six sees a series of seeming coincidences come together for the good of God's people. These are subtle and not Red Sea parting or fire from heaven moments. Maybe in the sports game, the wind changed direction. There was a fortunate deflection or a mistake from the opposition. We're back in the king's palace. Let's read together from Esther chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigbena and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Then Haman describes all that he wants to happen to this man, and the king proclaims that it is Mordecai that he wishes to bestow favor upon. Haman's worst nightmares come true, and he ends up parading Mordecai through the city on the king's horse in a crown and royal robes, proclaiming him as the one the king delights to honor. Then from verse 12, it says this. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. 
And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. The tables have turned. Did you see all of the coincidences? It could be easy for us to ask where God is in the book of Esther, as he's not directly named. But here we see his hand carefully directing the events of the chapter to providentially bring good to his people. On that very night, the day before Haman would come to the king requesting Mordecai's execution, the king could not sleep. Well, why couldn't he sleep? For seemingly no reason at all. There's no reason given, and he probably had a more comfortable bed than anyone else in the kingdom. Other times in the Bible, we hear of people who couldn't sleep, and there's a reason given. Perhaps they're distressed about events that have been happening, but here the narrator simply tells us that the king could not sleep. I'm not sure what you do if you're struggling to fall asleep, but a reading from the book of memorable deeds seems sure to send you right off. <laughs> the king hears of how Mordecai saved his life at the end of chapter 2, but also discovers that nothing had been done to reward him. And in those days, it was important for the king to reward loyalty. If he didn't, how could he be sure that others would be loyal to him? But if he makes an example out of Mordecai, others would be tempted to protect him. He needs to honor Mordecai quickly. Then the series of coincidences continues in such a way that provides a comedic irony. The king asks who is in his court, and Haman had just arrived to ask for Mordecai's execution. Then before Haman can make his request, the king asks what should be done for the man the king wants to honor. He doesn't mention a name. Haman's ego is stirred. How can it be anyone but me, he asks himself. And then, as we've seen, it is Mordecai who is honored, and Haman's worst nightmare has come true. Commentator Frederick Bush writes that Haman's arrival meets with a set of coincidences so remarkable that they can hardly be anything but a narrator's cipher for divinely arranged. Another commentator, Joyce Baldwin, puts it wonderfully when she says that this is a chapter of coincidences, and yet there is no detail of it in itself is unbelievable. No one acts in a way that is out of character. Indeed, it is the very predictability of Haman's self-glorification that makes for such intense dramatic irony when Haman has to eat the dust and honor his hated enemy. God is at work all over this story. He uses the desires of people's hearts, good and bad, to work for the good of his people. The words of Joseph to his brothers at the end of Genesis ring true in our ears here. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We won't spoil the rest of the story. There's still much to be done. The Jews are still facing their upcoming destruction but we can take courage from this series of providential coincidences that God is always working in our lives. Maybe you can see it. Maybe you can't quite see it yet. Or perhaps we'll never be able to see some of the ways he's been working this side of eternity. But the truth is, the Lord is the king who reigns over the earth. Nobody can stop his plans and purposes. When the nations rage at each other, the Lord sits and laughs. Therefore, Unlike the king in our story, we can sleep at night in the knowledge that we are safe with him. What about me, though? 
you might be saying. Does God care about me? Maybe you lost your job or a loved one in the pandemic. Maybe the cost of living crisis is squeezing you to the point where you don't know what to do. Or loneliness is surrounding you and you can't see a way out. Take heart. His eye is on the sparrow and he watches you. He knows every hair of your head, every star in the sky. He holds it all together. He makes a way through the sea. He provides bread in the desert. He brings life where there is barrenness and he sets the lonely in families. He works in the big and in the small. The nations are like a drop in his hand and none that are given to him he will ever cast out. What peace there is to be found in the sovereign hand of God. He doesn't promise comfort and ease, but he does offer life. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Whatever situation you find yourself in at the moment, if you know him, he will keep you. He is truly where our help comes from. Our passage ends with Haman's wife and his friends proclaiming that the people of God cannot be overcome. And if you're a Christian here today, that is true of you. As we come towards the end, I want to read again some famous verses from Romans chapter 8 that feel appropriate in light of all that we've read and heard today. What then should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Perhaps we could have the band up. Friends, there's so much good news in what we have heard today. As we consider the providence of God, we can look back as we've done in our worship to the cross of Christ and know all of our needs met. There we find forgiveness, we find life, we find the restoration of our relationship with God. And now we can come with confidence to the throne of grace, knowing we are welcomed, we are cared for, and we are loved. Let me pray. Lord, I come with confidence towards you now because of the truth of these words that we said today. I thank you that I can come knowing that death has been overcome by the finished work of Christ on the cross and that you are working all things for my good. Would you open our eyes to see your hand in our lives and help us to trust you more? When things look hard or difficult, would we know that you are always good? We thank you for who you are and we offer our lives up to you again this morning. Amen.